greetings in Jesus' name. That Savior, that one with the nail prints in his hands and his feet. There is no other Savior. There is no other hope. There is no other plea, the song goes. Set through the Lord. So, I want to welcome each of you to this part of the service. Thank you all for coming out. And we'll look to the Lord for some more direction. I uh, had put off this message a few weeks ago and said I would be a message on marriage, but I put it off. And so now this morning, as promised or as threatened, (laughs) we'll have a message on marriage. It'll be the first of probably several messages. So uh, why don't we just pause for a word of prayer. Let's just pray. Lord, we're grateful to you. Thank you, Lord, for this morning, what has already transpired here. And we trust you, Lord, that you will continue the work that has been begun. Pray for those three young sisters who have given their testimony and are seeking baptism. I pray, Lord, you would bless them the next several weeks, and in their lives. Pray for each of us, Lord, that we each have a responsibility to them, both to be an encouragement to them and an example. And uh, just pray, Lord, we as a, as a congregation would be a life-giving congregation to be encouraging, directing, and correcting. So, Lord, we are grateful to you for guiding us here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible teaches that marriage is the design that God had for the human race right from the beginning, way before the fall, way at the beginning. And as I I didn't do a full study of marriage, but I know marriage is referred to in Genesis, it's in Exodus, it's in... Uh, most of the books from Genesis to Revelation could say marriage is either in there or referred to in basically throughout the Bible. It just permeates the scripture. Even uh, think of Jesus talked about marriage. Paul talked about marriage. Peter talked about marriage. John, John did. And uh, even James, he did uh, when he talked about uh, certain people that weren't doing right, he called them adulterers and adulteresses, which is a reference to marriage. So it's just referred to the whole way through. Marriage is simply such a part of our society and life that we don't even refer to it. Even though not everyone does get married, it is still a part of our society. Now, everything that God created was good. But everything that God created and called good has been deformed by man, and marriage is no exception. Everything that God called good has been deformed and spoiled and exploited by man because of sin. And marriage is no exception. And just as Jesus Christ came to restore everything, marriage is no exception. He came to restore that as well. And so what I have this morning in this message here, the title is Marriage, A Reflection Gone Bad. And so we'll have the first part of marriage and a reflection of something good and how it has gone bad. (laughs) 
In Genesis, God said it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a help suitable for him. I will make a help me. What I hear the verse says, and the Lord God said it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him an help meet for him. No, a help meet for him. I said that wrong. Because it's not a help meet. It's not a noun. It's a description of something that was made. A help that is suitable for the man. Exactly the word of a counterpart. Uh, psychologically and physically, there's two parts. I don't know if you ever get got uh, an instructions of how to install somebody, uh, something rather, not somebody. Sometimes we wish we could. But uh, install something, and it talked about male and female parts. And I thought, that's strange. I mean, there's... The parts aren't gender, but there is actually a fitting together of parts. And that is actually how male and female are. They are a counterpart. They're made to go together. And, uh, and they have to be put together properly for a device to work. And their parts and their roles aren't interchangeable. And that is how it is for men and women. And actually, the fact that a man needs a helper, a help meet for him, says more about the man and more about him and his need than it does about the woman and her part. It's the man that was the needy soul. It's us men that have a need. And God saw that, and God made a woman to meet the need for mankind, for man. And that was even before the fall, and the woman fit his need perfectly. So a marriage can be described in many ways. It can be described as blending two in one. It can be called a harmony, called a couple, a pair, a union, a companionship, and a team. And marriage is all of that. This morning, I like to, like the title says, uh, I like to talk of marriage as a reflection. Marriage is a reflection. Now, you understand when you look in the mirror, you don't see yourself. You understand that, right? You see a reflection of yourself. Well, the, the way I want to use the word reflection is this dictionary re- definition. There's a few definitions, and this dictionary definition that I want to use as a reflection this morning is, uh, is this. A thing that is the consequence of or arises from something else. And the way that definition is used is... Is healthy skin is a reflection of good health in general. So what you have is good health is the is the uh, the foundation, and healthy looking skin is a reflection of that foundation. So that's a reflection. You see the connection. You see the the real thing, the real source. And then you see the reflection of that source. That's how I want to use that. So you have good health is a root. Healthy skin is a reflection of that good health. So if marriage is a reflection, what does marriage reflect? If healthy skin is a reflection, where is that health coming from? And if a marriage is healthy, where is that health coming from? Now, for a body to be healthy, it needs to be functioning the way it was intended. It needs to be functioning the way it was designed, improper balance, properly nourished, free from injury and disease. That's a healthy body. And there's lots of things that can go wrong in the body, but it needs a number of things. So a marriage, to be healthy, needs to be functioning the way it was intended. It needs to be properly balanced. It needs to be properly nourished. 
and need to be free from outside injury and disease. And so, we're going to look this morning, anyhow, we're going to look at the source of that marriage, and we're going to turn to the very familiar marriage scripture, which is Ephesians 5. And you can turn there. We see marriage there as a reflection of Christ's covenant love for his church, for his bride. If we look at Christ and his church, and we see how they interact with one another, then we see the proper reflection that a a marriage can also function. We actually have what what we call the the replica to follow to a godly, healthy marriage. See, marriage is the most powerful illustration that we have of Christ's covenant love for his church. Christ makes more of marriage than even we who believe in marriage and appreciate marriage and are jealous about marriage. Christ makes more of marriage than we who are committed to it. And he, Christ, is faithful to keep his covenant responsibilities and duties in that relationship. And the faithful church responds to his love. And we will never really get hold of what our marriage means until we get a hold of this. You see, the Bible does not instruct us how to organize our businesses. Not exactly. It doesn't tell us how to organize our school or our charitable organizations. There's principles. But God does tell us how to organize our homes. So, let's read Ephesians 5, and I'm going to start at verse 15, which is a common uh, common place to start, even though it's not about marriage at first, and yet it's very relevant to 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 the home in itself. So we'll read there. The preamble includes everything that is good to have in every home. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there you have a home. If you have all those things in a home, you have many, many blessings already. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Wise, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hateth his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let 
every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Now, if you are looking, this message is not primarily about marriage, but it's primarily about Christ and the church. About Christ's love for his people. In fact, the Bible is mostly a story of Christ pursuing his people, his bride. That's what the scripture is about. About God choosing a wife for himself. And astonishingly enough, he chooses common people like you and me for his bride. That's astonishing. And you were chosen by the king. So every Christian marriage, every Christian marriage points to the ultimate marriage between Christ and the bridegroom, the church and the bride. I'm sorry, Christ, the bridegroom and the church, the bride. And the goal of this passage is to involve everyone in their commitment to marriage in light of the fact that the Christian marriage is a microcosm of the true relationship between church, the Christ and his church. That is what this passage is about. So it's what God has proposed in all eternity, Christ and his church. And then we have to wonder why marriage is so much under attack, because marriage is a reflection of the Lord and the church. Now, personally, each one of us who is married here, recognize that your marriage is a reflection of your relationship with Christ. Recognize that. Your relationship with your spouse says a lot about your relationship with Christ. It's not true that you can be a good Christian and a bad spouse. Because you interact with your spouse the way you do largely because of your interaction with Christ. So let's get down to the broad structure of this beautiful relationship in perspective. So number one, and um, I guess I gave a little bit of disclaimer. It's hard to give all the everything in proper perspective and balance, so I'll, I'll do the best that I can. But we'll we'll go here. And number one that I have here is the headship order prescribed. Prescribed, which means something stated authority as a rule or action that should be carried out. And so we're going to reread some of these verses here in Ephesians 5. Headship order prescribed. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands and everything. So tell me, what is the one thing in view here, both in Christ and in marriage? What is in view here? Christ is the head of the church. The husband is the head of the wife. And as the church is in submission to the Lord, so the wife is in submission to her husband. And the real thing is how the church is subject to Christ. And the reflection is how a wife is in subjection to her husband. Christ provides leadership to the church. And the church responds to that leadership. That's what is pictured here. Now, many times, the reason people are upset about this directive for wives to submitting to husbands is not because it's hard to understand. It's because it is impossible to misunderstand. It's, it's just clear 
the word submit is translated elsewhere to obey, to be obedient to the husband, be subject to him, and in the last verse, to respect him. Now let's go to the husband. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having a spot, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself, for no man yet ever hateth his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it even as the Lord the church. So what images stand out here? What stands out? Well, love, definitely, right? We see that love right there. It's love stands out. Love your wife. What else? Sacrifice stands out. And nourish or nurture stands out. And then some results stand out. A beautiful and glorious splendor is what some translations use as a, as a, the result. That comes out of a loving, self-giving, sacrificial love of a husband comes a beautiful wife. This is the husband who had the best interest of his wife in his heart. And in doing so, he gets a blessing for himself. That's what we see here. Like a nurtured plant, this nurtured plant that is nourished and cherished, so a wife that is nurtured in that way prospers and blossoms. We're talking in general, generalities right now. Husbands, I would like to impress upon us that we are responsible for our homes. God looks to us for leadership. The scripture that we read clearly states that we are the hand, head, and I want to expand a little bit on that. Back in the garden, who got the command from God that all the fruit is theirs except that one tree? Who got the command? Adam, right? Adam got the command. He got the directive from God. When Eve came, the first family was established. And I want you to remember that children do not make a family. Children are added to a family. The first family was established by that first two people, the couple. And then Eve got the directive as well about the fruit, and she presumably got it from Adam. It doesn't specify, but we're presuming she got it from Adam. Then who was the first to eat the fruit, the forbidden fruit? This is a, it was Eve, right? We all know that. Okay, Eve was the first one to eat it. Adam was second. Now, we could say here, Adam failed in leadership. We could say that with conclusiveness. In fact, Adam did not directly obey the devil or listen to the devil. God said, as he began to give Adam the judgment, he said, because you have hearkened to the voice of thy wife, then he got the judgment. So, Eve eats, then Adam eats. When God comes seeking for them, who does he come to? Comes to Adam. He addresses all the parties involved, but Adam is held primary responsible. And Paul speaks about this truth as he contrasts Adam and Christ. And you can turn to Romans chapter 5. We're talking about men taking responsibility for leadership and how God, how God gives that 
to, to the husband. In verse 12, we're talking about con- uh, where Paul is contrasting Christ, Adam and Christ. And in verse 12 it says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. So he states here that one man, through one man, sin entered the world. And so we're thinking, well, maybe that's sort of generic one man. Maybe he meant man and women, mankind. But let's read on here. Let's read here in verse 14. Never death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. Verse 17, for by one man's offense, death reigned by one. Much more, they which receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification for life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Now, if I would describe how sin entered the world, I would say it entered the world. Its initial entrance was by one woman. That's what I would say. But she ate first. The first sin was committed by the woman. Doesn't it seem a little unfair that Adam gets the blame for what she did first? What do you think? Adam thought so. (laughs) You know what he did? When God came to him, he said, that woman that you gave me, so it was her fault and it was your fault, God, because you gave her to me, she she did it. So Adam thought it wasn't his fault. Did God accept that excuse? <laughs> Obviously not. Did not. The point here is, husbands, that God is looking to you to lead your home. And wives, it is your primary responsibility is to be a helper, his support, by coming underneath his leadership. This is the home order prescribed. Now, I'd like to look a little deeper in that. Number two point is the, the number one was home order prescribed or headship order. Number two is this order was established before sin, before the fall. And so this notion of Adam's headship, that his position of ultimate responsibility and authority for his marriage and his family is is supported by a, a, a series of factors. And we'll look at some scriptures, but I'll just read a few factors here first. Adam's creation was prior to the woman. Adam named Eve in consequence of God's creation of her. And God, what we just read, God holding Adam, not Eve, responsible for his and Eve's sin, even though Eve had sinned first. And then the the woman's designation as the man's suitable helper. Now, some other supporting verses. We've already read how Adam was responsible there, both in Genesis and in Romans. Now, let's just look at a few verses. You, you, can, tell if you can turn there if you want to, but you don't have to. In 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul is addressing headship order, he's saying in verse 3, But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, he gives reasons why that is. Now, people, when they give reasons why that's not so, they used to say, well, that was cultural. It was an ethnic thing that they did. It was a tradition that they had that the uh, ungodly women were uncovered and so and so and, and, and they give their reasons why they don't need and they dismiss the whole passage. 
But Paul doesn't appeal to culture or tradition or ethnicity or anything of that nature. He actually goes back to Genesis, to the beginning, before the fall. And in verse 7, we have that. For a man eat not, man indeed ought not to cover his head for as much as he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of the man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. And then, and so there we have the reasoning given why there's a headship. And in another passage dealing with order, in the church, in in First Timothy chapter two, verse verse twelve to fourteen, and he again goes back to Genesis, but this time he gives a reasoning both before the fall and the fall itself. He actually uh, in this passage he gives both reasons why there's disorder in the church. But I suffer not a woman to teach or usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. That's before the fall. And then Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. That was the fall. So the point I am making here is that the, the order in marriage, in the home, has been established before the fall. It was not the result of sin. In other words, we're all wearing clothing here today. That is the result of the fall. If there would have been no fall, nobody would be wearing anything today. But because of the fall, there's some things changed. What I'm saying is this headship order is not one of the things that changed. It's not part of the curse. It's part of the original plan of God. And it's a beautiful thing because everything God made is beautiful. And we'll describe a little bit how it was spoiled. But that's what we want to just get across right now. In fact, the headship order, there is... Nobody and nothing that does not have a head over him except God the Father. God the Father. Then you have Christ, man and woman. And everyone has a head except God the Father. That's the structure of the universe. Not the universe. That's the structure of everything. So, before the fall... It wasn't just mutual ref- mutual friendship and then after the fall, now the headship structure comes in place. It wasn't that way. <clears throat> now, and, and I think the reason I, reason I want to bring that out is sometimes we might think that headship structure is part of the curse, but it, it isn't. It's part of God's normal healthy, divine plan for marriage. So, if Adam was the head of the home before sin, how do you think he led that home? He led it, would you say, with clarity, with tenderness, with gentleness, compassion? Adam was given the directive to he was given the charge to keep care, to dress the garden and to keep it, to have dominion. God, uh, Adam was given the charge by God, and Adam went like an obedient child, uh, son of God. He went ahead and he did it. He went at it. He provided leadership. He was intelligent. He could plan and devise. And Eve, before the fall, how do you think she responded to Adam's leadership? Joyfully, willingly, easily, readily. It was a pleasure for her to follow her handsome, strong man of God. That strong husband of mine. Matthew Henry said, if a woman had not sinned, she would have always would have obeyed with humility and meekness. If a man had not sinned, 
he would have always ruled with wisdom and love. Sin has marred that perfect world. And we don't have to look very far to see that. So number three is how is the headship order, how the headship order was ruined. How the headship order was ruined. After Adam and Eve sinned, God confronts them, beginning with Adam. The structure is still in place that he had put in place as far as God was concerned, as far as the the structure of order. God deals with all the parties because God is just. Then he gives the consequences or the, the, the judgments of their sin. He gives it in reverse order. He starts with the serpent and then he goes to the woman and then he goes to Adam in reverse order. Now, the judgment that is given to Eve is the one that is relevant to the message this morning. What did Eve get in her judgment? What we call the curse. But we, the reason we call this the curse is because God told Adam, cursed is the ground for thy sake, which means it's going to bring forth this. But it, it's actually not a curse. It's a judgment. It's a consequence given for their sin. That's what it is. And in, in a sense, it's a curse, but uh, it's, a, it's a judgment. Well, what for judgment did the woman get in Genesis chapter 3? And maybe you should turn there because we're going to stick in Genesis now for, I think, the rest of the um, rest of the time here. So turn to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16, if you have your Bible with you. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. This is the proclamation of God, just like he gave to Adam about the curse, about the uh, the ground that was cursed, and that the sweat of the brow, and you're going to die. Uh, God is is telling them what the post-fall reality was going to be like. Things are now going to be different, and God is telling them what it's going to be like. It's not the same. And here is one of them. And to the woman, they're both related to family, if you notice that. First was the introduction of the difficulty and pain in the bearing of children. This would not have been the case before the fall. The second one is the one that's relevant this morning if we look at marriage. Thy desire shall be to thy husband. Now that sounds pretty good, maybe, doesn't it? Maybe she has uh, a desire for her for a husband. Maybe it's a desire to help her husband. Maybe she has a desire to... Um, for his protection and his oversight? Maybe that's what she has. What, what for desire does she have to her husband? That's a question. I don't know. Maybe you all have your opinions already on that. I don't know. I don't know if I ever discussed it. But one way to interpret scripture is with other scripture. And in this case, in verse 16, there is another scripture that is identical to this scripture. It's a parallel verse. If you turn over to chapter 4, and that parallel verse, the verse is the last part of the verse, is in verse 7. And this is when Cain and Abel, uh, they were bringing their sacrifices. Cain's, uh, Abel's was accepted and Cain's was not. And and Cain's countenance fallen. I'll start reading at verse 6. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? And why is thy countenance fallen? God speaking here. If thou dost well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou dost not well, does not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. 
And those last part of that verse 7, unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. If you go back to Hebrew, it's identical wording. <laughs> the only thing that's different is the characters involved. Instead of a husband and wife, in the other case of Adam and Eve, let me see if I get this, make sure I get this right. Instead of Eve and Adam, in this case, it is sin and Cain. Both Eve and sin have a desire, according to God. In fact, God was the one speaking in both of these verses. So we're not sure what Eve's desire was. So now let's look at what sin's desire was, and maybe we get a picture. Did sin desire Cain because he loved Cain? What do you think? Did sin love Cain? We say no. Did sin desire Cain because he wanted to assist and help and improve Cain? What do you think? No. Sin cared about Cain, right? Sin had a heart for Cain, right? (laughs) No. Sin wanted to take over and control Cain. And Cain was warned by God not to permit that. You can check it out in Hebrew. The wording is identical except for the subjects involved. Now, I want to be one real click disclaimer in here. I am not likening a woman to sin. You have to understand that. You will miss it. It's not about that. It's only the dynamics of relationship in this verse, okay? There's a dynamic in relationship going on here, and that's what we're looking at, at that dynamic. We're not comparing characters. We are comparing dynamics of relationship. Got that? Okay, thank you. (laughs) Seeing that sin has the desire to take over and control Cain. The last part of chapter 3, verse 16, could be paraphrased this way. God is saying to Eve, and you, woman, you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. Just like more pain, not more, just like pain in childbirth, just like thorns and thistles, this is a reality in a fallen world. And now comes the directive today, wives submit to your husbands. Husbands love and cherish and nourish your wife. That's the directive that we get in the, in the gospel. In Christ, we are to follow his example and by grace overcome, what overcome the curse. Yes. Not do away with it, but overcome it. Now, we've all been observing storms come up in the West. I remember as a child, storms were scary. Some storms were scary. We sat out in the porch, we watched the thunderstorm. But every once in a while, there would come a storm up in the West. that It struck fear in my heart as a boy. So that every once in a while, it has a little bit of that still. When I see a storm come in the West, and it looks, this is not a normal storm. This this, we're not sure what will happen. This one could be a, well, a scary storm. And so that fear, a certain kind of fear grips the heart. Well, when God gave this proclamation to Eve, to our first parents, and he said, you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. If they understood what that meant, there is a certain fear that could have taken their hearts. There is some kind of a storm here that I am not sure what's going to be out of this thing. That's what could have. I don't know if it did, but it could have. There's a storm brewing, and that storm is going on today. It hasn't abated to this day. 
Your husband will rule over you, but instead of ruling by wisdom and love, how does a husband rule? Tend to rule. Okay, I'm talking about in generalities. Sin can cause a husband to be selfish and tyrannical. He can be oppressive, cruel, and inconsiderate. He can be unloving and stubborn, like someone said of me, Stuckkoppig. A husband can be that. So the temptation for the husband under the guise of just giving leadership is to be bossy and overbearing and judgmental and domineering. And how do women try to control their husbands? Well, they can nag, they can manipulate, they can withhold affection, they can ridicule, they can go around his authority, they can give steady resistance, they can wear him down, they can give him argue, silent treatment, and rebellion. And the response from some husbands to that is to just give up, give in, and be passive. I, I'm tired of this. I have a co-worker who does exactly this. I'm tired of this. I can't handle it. Just give up and let her rule the house. Then there are some wives who just wish their husband would lead. They would care, that they would make wise decisions. But the husband is a flat tire. He's lackadaisical, or he's lazy, or he's uninvolved, or he's, um, he's not confident to rise up and be in charge of the home. Or his interests may be elsewhere. At any rate, he's not nurturing and caring for his home. Now, this description that I've given, which is only partial, parts of that, not the everything, but parts of that is in each one of us. That's, that's us. I just described us. Uh, it's, it may not be the way you're living. I hope not. Well, maybe it is. But it's in potential if it's not in actuality. In fact, and that is the picture of our lives together, except what the grace of God can do. And that's, for the most part, is the structure of the message. I'm going to have a little bit of closing thoughts here. But that's, for the most part, is the structure of the message. What I wanted to bring out this morning, that there is a headship order prescribed. And I want to confirm that that order was prescribed before the fall. It's not part of the judgment. It's not part of the curse. And then I want to just show how the headship order has been marred. And God said, this is actually how it's going to be. And then we also read the verses of how it's, how the, how the structure of the home is to be ordered. And then I, of course, gave a little bit of some indication how it's been marred. So I'm going to give a little bit of a um, closing thoughts here as we um, maybe bounce toward the next thoughts for the next message. In Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, it has these words, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching, which that teaching means training or disciplining or chastening, chastising us. So teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. And the emphasis I want to put on that is the grace of God does the teaching, does the training. That is the hope that we have to to avoid the 
how to headship order, how to structure, how to relationship. Let's say that I don't even like the idea of the headship or the order, but there is an order. But the relationship, how it's been marred in marriage. It's going to be the grace of God that's going to train us and teach us. And that comes through many for, many facets, including teaching here. So in the next few marriages, we want to look at the true marriage, Christ and his bride, the church, and how we can pattern our marriages to reflect that. The standard that God's word sets for husbands is very high. Why is that? I'm giving you a preamble of the next message. It's because Christ is our standard. You say that's high. I say, husband, before you criticize your wife for not meeting her standard of submission, just check to see how you're meeting your standard. Wives, your submission to your husband is to reflect your submission to Christ. In fact, it is part of your, I say it's your job, it's your privilege to show to us husbands what submission to Christ looks like. <laughs> That's a privilege you have for you ladies to show your husband what submission to Christ looks like. And here's the hope. The grace of God can take any harsh or any cruel or just as bad any passive husband and make him a gentle and gracious and godly leader. The grace of God can do that. The grace of God can take any woman who is controlling and manipulative and nagging and domineering and disrespectful and make her respectful and loving and submissive with a meek and quiet spirit. The grace of God has the power to do that as we submit ourselves to God as we resist the flesh. So may the Lord bless you all. I also trust that all in the room that are not married can learn from it as well, because it's as we get into the more especially, it's going to be dealing a lot with relationships. So may God bless you.